The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, 17-year-old Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse had a preliminary hearing last week that quickly turned contentious. Court TV's Julia Janae was following along and has a report on the fireworks. Among the accusations, Kyle Rittenhouse was hunting humans that night. Is this a fair description of his actions? Attorney and friend of the podcast, Eklund Mercy, thinks so and will tell us why. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. You know, there are a lot of big cases that we are following, tracking, and, and reporting on at Court TV. And most of these big cases, there's, there's a general consensus among the public the way they feel about them. For instance, uh, the George Floyd case, um, there are people who who are looking at that skeptically, the, the charges by prosecutors. But generally speaking, there's a consensus that something wrong obviously happened there and, and that uh, someone needs to be held responsible. You know, you take a look at the the case of the doomsday couple out in Idaho, another huge case we're following. And I think that's an overwhelming consensus on on what's going on there. I mean, they may turn into the most hated couple in America. But there's another high-profile case where it is so different, so extremely different the way the public is seeing this. This is the most polarizing case that we are covering right now on Court TV and will be probably the most polarizing trial when we cover it. I'm talking about the case of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, there are two different ways to look at this case, and, and, and I'll, I'll explain exactly what I mean. On the one hand, some people see this case as a 17-year-old kid who wants to be a cop, who is, uh, gets in the car, goes from Illinois to Wisconsin because he wants to confront people with his gun, and he's going to do whatever he's going to do. And he ended up shooting and killing two protesters, right? You have these protests taking place in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He goes there to make trouble, to confront people, and he ends up killing two people, two demonstrators. That's the way one group of people see that story. Now, the way the other group of people see the story is there weren't protests in Kenosha. There were riots, and there were buildings being burnt down. And the police were being told to stand down. So it was up to citizens to go there with guns and protect businesses. And that's what this 17-year-old kid did. And while he was there, he was attacked and he defended himself. And he acted heroically. That's the complete opposite of the other way. I mean, that is the way this case is being perceived. And the split is almost down the middle on this one. So... This polarization has now trickled into the courtroom because you've got a prosecutor and, and defense attorneys who do not see eye to eye, who are like oil and water, and they were back in a courtroom, right, virtually, but we're back in a courtroom, and it was so obvious to me that this is going to be a fight of fights, and these two sides will not agree to anything, and we had a prelim, and 
Court TV legal correspondent Julie Janae is covering it for us, and she joins us now. Uh, Julie, did, did I do a good job in describing the way this case has been perceived by members of the public and, and the relationship between prosecutors and the defense? Hey, Vinny, thanks for having me on. You described it to a T. If you're looking at social media, you're looking at the media um, and how they're portraying it, that's definitely the two stark differences between how people are seeing the same 17-year-old. And this is a case with video. And and it, this is a case where the, the facts are, are, you know, the video is the video. It shows what it shows. And one group looks at the video, they see one thing. Another group looks at the video, they see something completely different, which to me is absolutely um, fascinating because I don't know how this ends up being perceived by a jury. But, Julie, we had a judge taking a listen to some of the uh, facts in this case and some of the testimony for the prelim. Um, let everyone know how that sort of went. How, what, what happened at that preliminary hearing, and, and what did the judge ultimately uh, make a decision on? This was a hearing over probable cause, whether state prosecutors have enough to charge Kyle Rittenhouse. This was his first time as a free person in front of the court, and it all happened via Zoom. And the judge not only ruled, of course, that the uh, probable cause did exist in this case and that it would be bound over for trial, but he also ruled on two motions to dismiss by the defense. They wanted to get two of the weapons possession charges thrown out. And during that time, even though the state was very limited in how they made their arguments and what evidence they put up, they just called one witness who gave the bare minimum as far as what is alleged in this case. I think the defense scored a lot of points because they were able to hold not only that detective, but prosecutors to certain elements of this case that will likely be central in this case going forward. So the defense at this preliminary hearing um, wanted to present their self-defense case. Oh, yeah. And, and it seemed, from my perspective, having covered uh, cases around the country, we've covered a lot of cases, and you have too, Julia, um, in states like Florida, where they have a stand-your-ground law. And it seemed that the defense was trying to transform this preliminary hearing into a stand-your-ground hearing. And in a stand-your-ground hearing is, you know, the defense is trying to um, get the judge to understand that, hey, there's a reason for no prosecution here. There are certain rights that the uh, defendant was exercising, and, and he should be immunized from prosecution. But Wisconsin doesn't have that law. And they don't have that kind of a hearing. This was not that kind of a hearing. This is a court commissioner, trial commissioner, who is just looking at this case on the merits based on whether or not the uh, detective and the prosecutors had enough probable cause at really low standard. And the defense team tried to get in those details about self-defense, trying to hold the detective to say that there was no one that Kyle Rittenhouse shot at who was not advancing and threatening him. That would have been a really big point to hold this detective to, but it was successfully objected to by the state. The court officiant, the judge, he said, look, you can't get into it. I know it's frustrating, but this is a probable cause hearing. There were two things that I thought the defense was able to hold them to. The detective did say that he could hear in the video multiple individuals chasing after Kyle Rittenhouse saying, get him, kill him. Another thing is that the defense was able to hammer home that 
Rittenhouse only shot at people who were advancing towards him and that he didn't shoot people who actually put their hands up and backed away. Uh, so not a Sandra Ground immunity hearing, but doesn't mean the defense stopped trying to get that information in. Right. And, and, and the other thing that I just noticed, there was such a level of attitude brought to that Zoom hearing, both by the prosecutor and the defense attorney. The defense attorney was, was um, you know, yeah, yeah, you just don't want to hear the truth, right? You don't, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. You don't want to hear the truth. And, and then the prosecutor in his presentation was so sarcastic as well. It, 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 to me, it gets to the heart of this case and the way this trial is going to play out, Julia, because I think, I think it's going to be impossible for either side to, to check that attitude at the door, even when the jury's there. Oh, yeah. I was glad in this hearing that they were not wearing masks because seeing their faces uh, just added to what we were hearing and getting from this hearing. So ADA Thomas Finger, he was the one who made the arguments for the state. He was passionate in these arguments, even though it was narrow for the state. Uh, You could hear the emotion in his voice and the way that he delivered. And then for the defense, Mark Richards, I mean, his emotions were all over his face and he uh, sort of I mean he was chuckling at times over what the prosecutor was saying almost rolling his eyes and looking at his client during some he's on mute so we can't really hear what he's saying but his body language is saying it all um, the fact that the state has these positions about his client you can see almost the indignation uh, in everything about his demeanor so we really got a sense of two teams and likely how they're going to be in front of a trial judge. Right. And if that wasn't enough evidence, then following it all up, uh, what happens is the defense is trying to get one of their attorneys, one of the members of the defense team who was not licensed to practice in Wisconsin to be part of this defense team. And he's a California lawyer. And so they filed a very routine motion to have him admitted pro hoc vice, which means you're licensed in one state, you want to you want to try a case in another state, you come in, you make a motion, you get sponsored by a local attorney, and and based upon the local attorney vouching for you and you being licensed in the other state, the judge generally allows you to appear during that case, and it never ever gets objected to. The prosecution, Julia, objected to letting this California attorney into the case. Never objected until now. It was crazy to think about because this attorney had already been a big part of the case in the extradition hearing. And that happened when, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse is from Illinois. That's where he returned to after this shooting and turned himself in. So there was this fight in court to get him transferred from Illinois to Wisconsin. And John Pierce was front and center. In that case, he was the one making the arguments in front of the court. He helped write the uh, writ of habeas corpus. So it's surprising that now the state says they don't want him in and it's all over his financials, how he may be raising money in this case, and the comments that he has made publicly about his client, Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, to me it's bizarre because, first of all, since when do prosecutors care about where the money is coming from unless – they want to cut off the money to the defense, which is which is my own theory on, on one of the reasons for the objection. But the other one where John Pierce has been very public, right? A lot of pretrial publicity. But now Pierce, who had made the motion to get admitted pro hoc vice, apparently has opted out of being part of the criminal defense team yeah. in this case. He, he tweeted out that 
And this is when there was still a back and forth. The uh, defense filed that motion to have him admitted. And the judge actually initially granted it because it's so boilerplate. It's just rubber stamp almost when someone applies. So they granted it, but the state many days later objected and realized that maybe the court didn't notice that they had objected to this entry. So it was still pending with the court, but John Pierce tweeted out that he's going to step back, focus on just the civil side and fundraising, which uh, has been significant for Kyle Rittenhouse. It's part of the reason he was able to make his $2 million bail. Yeah, the the raising money for the defense, for the investigation, for the experts, for the bail, to pay the lawyers and everything else continues. Uh, but, yeah, this is one, folks, that we are obviously got our eyes on because this is one where you are going to see uh, it's not just a battle about the case. It's a it's, it's this one's personal. It absolutely is personal and it's polarizing. Julie Janae, Court TV legal correspondent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back, I'm going to play a little bit of what the prosecutor said during that preliminary hearing. And there's a little piece that I think gives us an indication as to what his theory of the case is going to be, how he's going to argue this case in front of the jury. And I personally think it's a huge mistake, but we're going to bring in someone who thinks it's exactly on target. Absolutely 100% true and uh, the way to prosecute this case. Eklund Mercy will be with us when we return. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to courttv.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. The defense seems to construe this statute as requiring that we plead their affirmative defense. I don't construe it that way. There is no requirement that we allege that the subsection 3C exception doesn't apply to the defendant. There is no dispute it doesn't apply to him. No one is alleging he's complied with hunter safety regulations or has a certificate or has done the class or that this was hunting in the traditional sense of the word. This was hunting humans, not deer. That's the prosecutor in the Kyle Rittenhouse double homicide case out of Wisconsin. And Kyle Rittenhouse is the 17-year-old going from Illinois to Wisconsin. And, And this is the argument, especially when you listen to that last line, that I believe the prosecutor will use in front of the jury, that Kyle Rittenhouse sees what's happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, has to go there, has to leave his home state of Illinois, get to Kenosha, get an AR-15, and go hunting, and hunting for humans. Now, I'm a former prosecutor, and I wouldn't be comfortable making that argument based upon what, what I've seen in the, in the video, in the evidence, the testimony, and, and what I believe will end up in front of this jury. I mean, to me, it's all about credibility, and I think if the prosecutor says this is 17-year-old's sole uh, purpose was to hunt and kill humans. I don't know. I, I don't think it's a winner. But guess what? My next guest does. Criminal defense attorney, friend of the show, Eklund Mercy, back with us. Eklund, great to see you. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So what do you think of the, the process? And this is aggressive. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're painting a picture that a 17-year-old is grabbing an AR-15 to go hunt humans? Yes, because uh, it, it has to be. It has to be aggressive. It has to be in your face. It has to be emotional. Why? Because this case is political. It's been political since it happened. And we have um, congressmen uh, saying that this defendant should run for office, should run for president, for, for the for the presidency. So when you have that type of when you have that type of outlook, when you have that type of pressure, you have to go hard or go home. There was no other way. He had to go and pull a John Grisham. Why? Because this case um, requires it. We have a case in which it's a different time. It's a different space. Law has changed, and he has to change with that. We find that you said it's something really, really important. You said credibility. Well, um, cred- even credibility is being attacked every day in, in courtrooms because we have a president that won't take the votes of you know my state, Georgia's um, election results. So even credibility is being attacked everywhere. We have to go harm. We have to go hard or go home. We have we have a different type of jury. We have a jury that's been inundated by both sides, radical liberals, radical conservatives. Like we have all of that. We have, you know, people giving their two cents. We have a 17-year-old white boy who essentially um, is just a glaring reflection on just how different the criminal justice system treats black black boys and white boys. So he had to do it. It was it was necessary and I, I felt that it was a good move. So how does this play at trial? Because I've seen the videotape, okay? Mm-hmm. Now what I see in the videotape is someone running walking quickly, then running and jogging away from a crowd of demonstrators. I see a crowd of demonstrators pursuing him so how does that translate into he is going hunting if he's going hunting he should be going after them they shouldn't be going after him well well i don't hunt but um what i've looked for what i um what i learned from hunters are that they prepare so preparing is getting your ar-15 Preparing is getting to the right place that you want to be. Preparing is where your prey lives, where your prey is going to be at. That's preparation. The, um, putting yourself as a victim, which we see that often. Hey, he has a whole AR-15. He has a whole AR-15. That means he has death right across his shoulder, that he can release death at any point in time. And you're telling me that people... it. People are walking towards him. He has an AR-15. They're probably trying to help him. At the end of the day, when I have an AR-15, if I have an AR-15 and you have whatever the hell you have, guess what? I win. It's it's automatic. I win. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't care if you are a football player. I don't care if you are a linebacker. Linebacker. I don't care if you are beast mode himself. If you have an AR-15, you won. You won this battle. You don't fear any fears. And I feel like he put himself in that position. And that's why the prosecution's theory is it makes sense because you have to start from the beginning. You started from the street. The prosecutor is starting from his bedroom. The prosecutor is starting from his Facebook post. The prosecutor is starting from his Instagram, the, the, the Instagram groups. That's the planning part. 
he was hunting humans. And it, and it goes to his theory. And I believe that he's right. Well, what if the testimony comes out, and, and this is what it seems to indicate from some of the evidence that has become public, is that his friend gets a call from his former boss whose business is being torched and police are doing nothing to stop it from being torched. So the man who owns the business says, hey, I need some people to come and stand guard and protect my business because police are not doing it. They've got a stand down order from the from the mayor. So Kyle Rittenhouse responds to his friend who's responding to his boss to go there. So when you when you go back to the planning purposes, how does that turn into a hunting trip? At that point, um, any adult around can say insurance. You know, um, property has insurance. People have insurance to protect property. But most importantly, any adult should have told him that you cannot use lethal force for the protection of property. And that they are, and that these quote-unquote riots or things of that, how they're saying it, it was a protest because innocent people kept dying at the hands of law enforcement. Sit down, Kyle. It's not your fight. At this point, you wanted to find a fight and you found it. It's funny. It's it, That's all it is. If, if children want to find something, they're going to find it. If somebody, if an adult wants to find something, they will find it. He wanted to play with his gun. Guess what? He got it. And he, and, and everything, um, everything led to the murder of these two innocent people and the injury to this other one because he wanted to hunt humans. I, I, I suspect that they're going to bring in his game playing, um, if he plays PS anything, if he has any, uh, you know, very violent video games, I suspect that they're going to go into his Facebook. They're going to go to his social media presence. I suspect that they're going to go to what he watches, what he listens to. So with that being said, he was already on point to be aggressive. He's already looking for a fight. It don't take, it don't take much. If you are already prepped, you have your gun. You have your you ha- you already have your defense. Why? Because it's already politicized. People are telling people are telling you that they're rioters. You're not there. R- Kyle don't live there. So the only thing he got was hearsay that they are rioters. They were protesting. I protest. People can protest, but there were other people that were damaging property. That's not your bag. That's not your concern, Mr. Kyle Rittenhouse. That's why we have police. And at the same time, people are saying, hey, um, you know, uh, people are having issues with the whole phrase of defund the, the police. Well, let me, well, an argument that doesn't help is when you have defund, we're saying defund the police, right? But the argument against it is that, hey, we need all these people, but yet and still, while we have this heavily regulated police, department, how, why we have this heavily just funded law enforcement. It took a child to cross state lines to help protect property. Like it doesn't make sense. Make it make more sense for me. What I saw was, um, truck, like trucks, like, like just army trucks swerved past this person with the AR-15 on his side. Well, here's what the other side is going to say, though, is that all all the police were nowhere near what was happening. The police were doing nothing 
to protect the local businesses of Kenosha, which were being torched and destroyed. And and going back again to the is it is he hunting or is he going there to protect? It's going to be um, the testimony at the preliminary hearing about the first shooting of, of Rosenbaum was that there's a, a still frame from a video that exists from a distance, but the testimony was clear at the preliminary hearing that you had Rosenbaum running after Kyle Rittenhouse. The first shooting victim is pursuing Rittenhouse. So how, again, is that consistent with the hunting theme of prosecutors? Because, again, if common sense would say, listen, if I'm going hunting, I'm going after the prey. The prey's not approaching me. But this is this is the problem. When 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 your victim is dead, they can't testify to whatever the defendant said. So he he cleaned he cleaned up that piece of the, that little piece of evidence that could have helped out. But that's because coming. That's that was the testimony of the police officer based upon but, the video. And what based upon the video, what I'm trying to tell you is nobody just runs after people. It could have been there could have been some discourse. We don't have that information. Why? Because the victim is dead no longer alive. And I will tell you this, I do not care. I, I believe that lives matter. Black lives matter. Everybody's lives matter. They matter more than property. I do not care. And, and this is real, like Rosenbaum's family probably believes the same thing. I don't care if the whole of Kenosha, every property in Kenosha was set on fire, set ablaze. As long as every citizen is safe, it doesn't matter. We're protecting the wrong thing. That whole pr- property protection, who cares? We're here to protect lives and lives that are at danger. And we have children crossing the state lines to do it under the guise of protecting property. It's a problem. So it, it seems to me that you believe prosecutors have to focus not at the moment of the shooting, but to take a step back because. You know, what the defense is going to focus on is the confrontations themselves. Confrontation number one, they're going to argue based upon the testimony they got at the preliminary hearing in the video is that Rittenhouse is running away from Rosenbaum. And then the second video, Rittenhouse is walking away from the crowd towards the police when he is hit in the head, kicked and then smacked in the head with a skateboard And then the third uh, shooting victim brandishes a handgun and points it at Rittenhouse. All on video. Yeah. All on video. Yeah. And still um, intent. Intent is so important. Intent. So he didn't form the intent on that. No, the, the prosecutor is going to start from intent. That means start as him, as a person. Why did he feel such a pull to go to another state? Because let me tell you, he was. He didn't. He wasn't needed. He wasn't necessary. Do we have any? Do we have any um, information of the property he was supposed to be protecting? Because he left it. There was a building that he was in front of. There is footage of him being in front of the property. But no, he went out to go hunting. If you're protecting property, be in front of the property you're supposed to protect. But if you are trying to search for for people that you don't like, so you can shoot them with this this weapon of mass destruction, that is hunting. 
So that is what they're going to prove. They have to start. Don't start from the videos. You have to do what prosecutors do, which is they make these elaborate plant of disintent. And intent doesn't start there. We have background intent. Does he like people? Does he like protesters? Who is he fighting for? Did he get did he get confirmation? Did he get I mean his mom was helping him? Like what is he listening to? What is the posters? What what kind of posters are on his wall? What does he what type of games does he play? How was he as a student? Did he have anger issues? Does he feel like all all this stuff is necessary to prove whether he intended to murder people that day? It's going to be some polarizing case. It's, as Eklund has pointed out correctly, it has been politicized. And, and the question will be, who are the 12 people who will be sitting there in judgment? And what are the arguments that will be made? And how will they view the videos? And what is the testimony going to be? Because at the preliminary hearing, we only got one witness. Eklund Mercy, great to have you on the program. As always, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If I don't talk to y'all, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, yay. <laughs> and a happy new year. Thank you. Eklund Mercy, folks, great criminal defense attorney joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. All right. When we come back, folks, when we come back, this case, I believe, will not be determined by the evidence. What? It's supposed to be about the evidence, Vinny. No, no. I think the deciding factor in this case will be something different, whether it's right or wrong. I think this is what will make the difference. I will reveal that when we return. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. You know, every trial is supposed to be a search for the truth, and ultimately it's the evidence that makes the difference. And evidence comes in all different forms. There's physical evidence, you know, DNA, forensics, things like that. There are videotapes. There are eyewitness. And, and then there's testimony and expert testimony. All of that is considered evidence in a trial. But in this case, I don't think it's going to be the evidence that determines whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse is guilty or not guilty. I don't think so. Because as we've explained throughout the course of this podcast, the videotape is what it is, and people are seeing it much differently. So I think this case, more so than any other trial right now that we are tracking at Court TV, this comes down to the lawyers, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, and, and how they present this case. Because to me, it's about the messenger's message, which is an interpretation of, of the evidence, which will almost be uncontroverted. There might be some discrepancies about a few things that happened here or there. But generally speaking, a videotape speaks for itself. People see what they see. So to me, it, it comes down to the messengers. And as I discussed with Julie Janae, the attitude that both sides brought to the preliminary hearing and, and this oozing in all the court papers and filings that we have in this case, I think are a potential problem for both sides. 
and and they're great lawyers, so they they may already know this, and they're not in front of a jury yet. But when they get in front of a jury, I believe whichever side can bond, can create that relationship of trust with the jury. And to create that relationship of trust, I think the jury is going to trust whoever they like more. And it shouldn't be about that, right? I mean, a trial shouldn't be about, oh, I like the prosecutor more than I like the defense attorney. But in this case, I think that is so important. Who is going to come into that courtroom with credibility and with the personality and attitude that will somehow connect with the 12 men and women of the jury? I believe it will make all the difference in this case. All the difference. And some lawyers may argue in every case it makes the difference. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there are cases where the evidence is overwhelming one way or the other. And, and sometimes the lawyering and the lawyers are somewhat irrelevant. But here, not at all. Not at all. The, I think whoever they trust more is going to win this case. And as fiery and as passionate as both sides were in that Zoom hearing, I, I you know... I could see some some potential jurors being turned off by both sides, you know, in, in, in the way that this attitude and it was really, you know, towards each other and towards the case. So I think each side has to take a little bit of time to reflect and think, OK, how are we going to present this? How are we going to sell this? And, and, and what sh- what should how should I do this? What should my my perspective and point of view be? as I deliver my opening statement, as I examine and cross-examine witnesses, how I comport myself in the courtroom, and ultimately how I argue this case. You know, and there are times where you know, a prosecutor can be outraged and the outrage works. There are times where a defense attorney can do the same thing and say, this is outrageous that we're even here. And that's what I'm hearing from both sides right now. But I don't think that's going to work here because what has to happen is there's got to because it's so polarizing this case that you have two camps that are very distinct. Those camps may very well exist inside that jury box. And you've got to get them to 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 leave their camp and meet somewhere in the middle, whether that middle is reasonable doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt. So I think. The way that can be done is by an advocate, a lawyer, whether it's the prosecutor or the defense attorney, who comes across as credible, likable, believable, and is, and is not dug in on some extreme position. And that's why I had that whole discussion with, with Eklund Mercy. I think it's a mistake for prosecutors to take the extreme position based upon the video and the evidence and the testimony Uh, in this case, that Kyle Rittenhouse was out there hunting, out there hunting. And and the defense has to concede something as well that, yeah, okay, you know, it's not a complete outrage that we're even trying this case. I mean, two people who were not armed got shot and killed. So, I mean, there, there, there could be a reason for a jury to decide what happened here. The third person who got shot who didn't get killed did have a handgun. So I think whoever 
can make that and there's different ways to make the connection with the jury you know and I'll, I'll go back to you know a case that I draw upon all the time to my own uh, dismay which is the Casey Anthony trial and that was one where it was all about the lawyering the the jury trusted and liked the defense attorney and thought the prosecutor had an attitude and thought he was arrogant and as a result they found reasonable doubt in a case that was you know, I thought pretty much absent reasonable doubt. So this is another case that's in that area, that's in that, that, that gray area. And whichever side, I think, can create that relationship, whether it's through the way they, they make eye contact, the way they sound, the way they treat other people inside the courtroom, whatever it is, whatever it takes, for you to sell this case and win this case, which takes 12 people to agree, right? For this case to go away for the defense, 12 people have to say not guilty. For this case to be won for prosecutors, 12 people have to say guilty. Anything in between, it's a mistrial, and it lingers, and it'll probably be tried again and again and again. So to win this case, which is what I'm talking about, to absolutely win this case, I believe... Whichever attorney the jury trusts and likes will get the verdict that they're looking for. All right, folks, um, we will continue to track this case, obviously, into the future. But that I want you to see that Zoom hearing. So go to our show notes because we've got it posted on CourtTV.com. Take a look at it and, and see if you agree with me with, with the, the attitudes that were brought to that preliminary hearing. And as always, of course, you can watch me as well on television. Encore TV every night from 8 to 11. If you have a digital antenna and you can't find Court TV, please rescan that digital antenna and I'm sure you will find us. That's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. As always, folks, uh, have a wonderful week and don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to courttv.com for more content trials on demand and to find out how to watch Core TV in your area.